fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. These are four common trauma responses that you might slip into when you are under stress. You probably have one dominant trauma response and the others show up from time to time. But today I wanna to talk about the freeze response and the different ways it can show up and sabotage your life. Something stressful happens or it triggers you neurologically so that you get dysregulated. That's what we mean when we say triggered here. Um, dysregulated feels like spaced out, discombobulated, confused, very emotional, but not necessarily in the right proportion to what's happening. And then maybe the freeze response shows up as not being able to speak up, your ability to express yourself, to defend yourself, or to run away or say the thing that needs to be said, it gets frozen. Or the flip side, in that moment of discombobulation, you blurt something out that maybe you feel but was not at all what you meant to express. It could be something offensive, hurtful, irrelevant, just somehow not what you wanted the other person to hear. This is when the freeze response kind of explodes. So the freeze response arises in people who felt deeply attacked and threatened as kids. And you could call it a survival mechanism. It is because it's very much what some animals do when they can't escape a predator and it's their last ditch attempt to get the predator to leave them alone. But like all trauma-driven strategies, the freeze response stops working. It doesn't keep you safe. Freezing up in the face of trouble is not actually a way to avoid trouble. It's a way that trouble can engulf you and sabotage you. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Caitlin, and she writes, Hello, fairy. I was in a relationship for six months. I'm 50 years old, and I fell deeply in love. I've got my pencil. I'm going to read Caitlin's letter. It's a little longer than usual, uh, but I think you need all the details to hear what's going on. She's got a very complicated situation, and I will come back. I'm just going to read all the way through, and I'll circle things I want to come back to, and then we'll go through another time, and I'll talk about the things that I flagged here. So 50 years old, fell deeply in love. The man was super aware and sensitive, and during our time together, it became apparent that I have CPTSD. I did and said numerous things that made him feel unimportant, and in his words, destabilized our relationship every month. Prior to meeting him, I was in a 23-year relationship, says Caitlin, with a man who cheated on me repeatedly. He left me for a much younger woman who was a friend, I fell into a deep depression and basically had a breakdown. After one and a half years, I finally got to a place of being okay. I met this new man and he melted me, despite my uncertainty that I was ready for a new relationship. In retrospect, he wanted me to dive in so deeply and quickly that I was feeling in deep water. However, the connection between us was so beautiful and special. I remember packing a suitcase, calling a taxi, and moving out. I lived with the parents of the man who got me pregnant while he was in the army training. My mom disowned me. And I remember seeing her at the local shops with my younger siblings. She ignored me. She was also pregnant. We gave birth weeks apart. Can you imagine the shame and pain, etc.? I still keep this part of my life secret from my much younger siblings and want to expose it. My dad asked me to move home at eight months pregnant. I had the baby and I gave the baby up for adoption. The baby's dad filed for custody and was successful. I tried to be in contact at various points in my life, but they had moved out of my country and I never succeeded at this. 
Back to the now. During the recent relationship, it became evident that I'm still carrying shame and guilt from the past. I was not able to initiate or go to the next level of relationship with this man, who I felt so loved by and attracted to. He felt like an absolute gift. It was wondrous, yet I was self-sabotaging. He drew his boundaries and said, even though he loved me deeply and it was devastating, there was only so much he could put himself through. Life turned into a nightmare and has been for the past few months. I'm doing what I can to work on myself. We're in communication a little bit still, and he's kind enough to be willing to hear what I'm uncovering. We talked about marriage, owning property together, planning a future together. I'm completely devastated. I felt like we had a future together and could be in service together. As you mentioned, that it's a sign of marriage if two people can be of service together. He, he's a mindfulness teacher and meditator, and I feel I have the gift of presence. He leads devotional singing, and I love to sing, especially with him. I asked him if he's looking for a new love since separating. He said he has taken the emphasis off finding a relationship and looking at other ways to grow and fill his time. I'm hoping he's allowing time and space for me to grow, even though he said it's not fair for him to expect me to grow in a matter of months. I'm caught in a cycle of grief and hope that there's a chance we can be together again forever this time, even though I know he's deeply and rightly cautious of the pain all of this caused. So this was the first letter I got from Caitlin, and she told me all this, but I didn't understand, like, what exactly had she said that was so definitively devastating for the relationship? He seemed to really care about her, so what was it? So I asked her, and she clarified, these are some of the things she did that were upsetting to him, that were deal breakers. She said, I told him I still feel love for my previous ex of 23 years and, and had hoped we could rekindle. I told him that I asked my previous ex how his relationship was going with his new girlfriend at about th at the three month mark in, in my relationship with Mark, which made him feel worthless and like a second choice. I was defensive and said I thought it was a measure of my detachment, but in the conversation last night, he said my attachment to my ex really caused a lot of difficulty for us. So I do concede it is an attachment wound of some kind that was not yet completely finished, although I, I knew I had to fully let go of, the, of my ex of 23 years in order to be in a new loving relationship. Just after Mark discussed moving into my house with me and being co-owners, I said perhaps I should sell my house and move back to another country where I lived for two years in an ashram with a teacher. I didn't think about it, but just blurted it out. I think it was an expression of my desire to be healed and whole. I didn't know if I could do while in a relationship and thought perhaps I had to choose the path of renunciation or of selling all and being with a guru. It might be some kind of inability to believe or accept in myself that I'm capable of being healthy and loving and whole in life. It might be the desire to run and hide from all the pain in my life. In another incident, I spoke to a friend who was also following this spiritual teacher and she said that perhaps the life she has created for herself is a beautiful prison. And I went straight from that conversation to speaking to Mark on the phone and repeated it. He said I was implying our relationship was a prison, and I responded that I would have to make sure it wasn't. I think I was speaking from my past experience of relationship, but he could only understand it in relation to us. Okay. There are probably more examples that I'm not remembering right now, but what transpired after these conversations and words was that he would ask me for assurance and I couldn't give it. I would go into shutdown. He works in mental health 
and told me I was having a freeze response. It got to the point where he became increasingly upset with me, which culminated in fiery outbursts. His anger, although somewhat mild to medium, also must have triggered me because my mother was angry and yelling at me into my 30s, exasperated at me for making such a mess of my life and not getting married or starting a family. It was a f the freeze response where it would take me days to be able to respond to his cries for reassurance. That hurt him so much and destabilized him also. He wasn't able to sleep next to me, suffered a lot of inner tension and pain, and felt completely unimportant to me. He hadn't cried for 17 years and said our love opened him to be able to cry again, yet he had to cry too often due to the pain he was also experiencing, wondering why he wasn't important to me. I also had lost my job during this time and was in survival mode, trying to make my house into an Airbnb and doing cash cleaning jobs to survive. So he always had to come to my house to see me and I rarely visited him. I was so busy running around in circles, I couldn't stop or process or be still. I also have a cat I couldn't leave alone for long. I felt guilty about this, but was not able to change it. In our conversation last night, it became apparent again that, that the freeze response that was undermining my natural ability to be vulnerable and reliable. He said he loves me, there is no doubt, and he knows that I love him, but I have to accept that as we are now, it is done. For us to get back together, I have to grow past this freeze response and become trustable. He said the task of rebuilding trust between us would be an immense task. I told him there is nothing I want to do more that I need to change for there to be any hope for us to get back together. The fear has become so overwhelming and the sense of loss so huge that it has become chronic anxiety. I recognize that I feel powerless and scared. My fear of telling my mother how wounding it was to be disowned is affecting my ability to be loving and vulnerable and reliable today. I spoke to her for the first time as an adult just a week ago about the teenage experiences and told her I'm still carrying guilt and shame around around it and that I can't keep it a secret from the rest of my family anymore. She responded lovingly and said I shouldn't feel shame or guilt and offered to speak to my siblings about it. However, I was not able to tell her directly of the effect her emotional responses and actions have had on me. When I was speaking to Mark last night, I told him of this conversation and I started not being able to remember how she responded. The fear freeze response became apparent, sure, and that it is intimately connected to her. Mark said that she would have interpreted that I was stating, he, Mark said that she would have interpreted that I was stating shame and guilt around being pregnant, but none of the emotional wounding with her. She still had no emotional response to offer me. She said that surely my siblings know as they were there when it all happened, which is of course basically impossible due to their ages. She offered to tell them about it for me and I said yes. Mark said how disempowering it would be for her to tell them and yet still none of my experience with her is validated or acknowledged. It feels like a sickening task for me to speak to her about it. I've become an extreme people pleaser and cognitively understand that my mother is the one I'm people pleasing the most. I think the wounds are so deep deeply ingrained into my being like a coat of armor where I pretend that I'm an island, that I'm okay on my own. I'm okay being isolated and not valued in this life. The pattern has become so loud. It is on repeat in me in so many levels and layers of living, including my employment and friendships and obviously my ability to have a loving relationship. In hope that my insights are right, my understanding is right, and that I have the courage to speak to my mom and family and truly heal myself and possibly find love at the end of it.
that that's how she's signing off caitlin okay oh caitlin what a what a lot all right i think i think i can help i have some very strong impressions about this all right so first of all a 23-year marriage with somebody who cheated on you the whole time is so much and especially given the way your parents just totally abandoned you disowned you shamed you told people you were dead that is terrible what happened to you and i at age 15 what could you have possibly done to manage it differently what could you have possibly done better it's you know i just totally feel for you this this dilemma it's happened to so many people in their lives and the way your parents handled it i'm so sorry it's the worst possible way you met this guy mark um and you were together for six months. So first of all, when I read all of this, I had to go back and go, wait, how long have you been together? Six months. And I just wanna say that a lot of the demands that were placed on you, I feel are excessive for a relationship of six months. Now, everybody gets to decide whether they wanna be in a relationship or not, and Mark does too. So you, you had this terrible relationship. You had a breakdown afterwards. You were just feeling better. You meet this new guy. You knew you weren't quite ready, but love came to town. <laughs> That's, there we are. So you were in the relationship. Then you tell me about what, what came up for you was about being 15, yeah and disowned and this whole thing where your mom was putting on a show by wearing black and going to church every day and i respect people who practice their religion but telling people you were dead is not part of the religion that was her selfishness and her concern about what other people thought and i just oh i think that's horrible she doesn't sound like a very loving person and i hear that she was a little loving but she still doesn't even understand how, ah, you know, she has really let you down and it's gone on for years. And I just want to validate that. And I imagine that in this marriage with the cheater, like you were so conditioned to think that you didn't deserve better. I don't know that, that you were on a, like in a, in a ship that was foundering in a storm and just trying to hold on. You've been doing it all your life. So I'm not surprised when you meet this nice man and he's into you, that you, of course, you really wanted it to work. And I'm also not surprised that it was all going too fast for you. You weren't ready for it. He was putting a lot of pressure on you to be serious, to talk about marriage and living together and all this stuff at six months. Honestly, that's extremely fast. And especially for somebody who's recently divorced. And as we know, for somebody who's, you know, got a lot of unprocessed trauma. When you mentioned the thing about, I say a sign of marriage is that you could be of service together. And he, ha he has this thing, he leads devotional singing or something. And he's a mindfulness teacher and meditator. And you say, you have the gift of presence. I don't know if that's a sign. I think one thing that's the biggest sign that something is a marriage is that somebody can be with you and they will, will be with you. And so that's the kind of thing that sort of disqualifies the other things, but you know that, but I'm just saying that, I'm just saying that for the record, when somebody won't be with you, you have your answer. So he said very, he said, you know, it's not, he can't put up with all of this and you hadn't told me what it was yet. So I asked you and you told me about this. So this is very interesting. So you told Mark that you still felt love for your previous ex and had hoped you could rekindle. So I don't know if you told him that at one point you had hoped for that or you hoped for that in the moment, but that would certainly be lobbing a bomb in a relationship to say, well, I'm actually hoping to get back together with my ex. Anybody healthy would have to say, okay, then I'm not going to be here. But I'm not really sure what you meant there. And what's interesting is that you didn't describe it clearly enough that I know. And you're a good writer and you're pretty clear about a lot of things. And um, so I was just wondering, are you disowning that part of yourself that was wanting that or 
trying to minimize it or if all you said was, you know, for a while after he left, you were still hoping it would work out. And the reason I think that could be it is because some other stuff seems pretty normal to me. You told him that you asked your previous ex about how his relationship was going with his new girlfriend, and this was when you were three months into your relationship with Mark. And he says it made him feel worthless and like a second choice. If that's what you say, that's a very strange and insecure and controlling reaction to you just asking your ex how it's going. Now, to me, that's a very ordinary, I know he was a jerk, I know he cheated on you, but you were together for 23 years. So there is some kind of friendship there to ask, well, how's it going with her? So maybe there's more to his side of the story where you were, you know, in light of the fact that you had said you wanted to rekindle, you know, maybe that's what was making him react. So I don't know, but what you're describing here just sounds like somebody being way too controlling and thinking that you can't talk to your ex and ask how their relationship is going. That's not fair. You were defensive and you said you thought that asking your ex that was a measure of your detachment. I do too, I, I, if that's what it was, all it was. But in the conversation, um, Mark said your attachment to your ex really caused a lot of difficulty. So I guess he wants you to not have any contact with your ex. And I don't think that that, I think anybody can ask that. They can ask, hope to have a relationship like that, but it, it sounds like it wasn't made clear up front. It's pretty normal that people do have some contact with their ex. Sometimes there's children, sometimes there's, you know, property, and it's, <laughs> it hadn't been very long. So. So then you said, it, I concede it was an attachment wound of some kind. And I would just, I'm not sure what you mean by attachment wound, and, but I think what you mean is you were just still attached to him. You were, there was still an attachment there. And I just want to validate for you, that's really normal. Nobody can make you not have that. You'll get over it in your own time. You know, it takes time. It hadn't been that long. You had been through a lot. You were also wounded. Attachment wound technically, yeah, well, who cares what it means technically? I think that's what you mean. It was too much attachment. It wasn't appropriate in, in your boyfriend's eyes. And it meant that you were not completely finished, which is okay. A person a year and a half out of a 23-year marriage is not obliged just because somebody else has come into their lives to be in a place different from where they are. Okay, Caitlin, I just think, I think that you're getting an unfair shake here. So you said, I know I have to fully let go of the ex in order to be in a new loving relationship. Well, that's debatable, all right? People are gonna date somebody freshly out of a marriage at their own risk. And um, I, think they, I think that person needs to take responsibility for doing that if they know the timeline, right? So just after Mark discussed moving into your house with you and being co-owners, Okay, huge move after six months. I don't approve <laughs> of that timeline. I think that's way too, I know people do this kind of thing all the time. Like, and even if he just wanted to move in, one thing, but own half of your house, wait a minute. I don't like that. Um, and then you said, perhaps I should sell my house and move back to another country where I live for two years in an ashram with a teacher. So he was hurt. You, you're kind of speculating maybe it means that I was trying to be whole. Yeah, I think you were trying to be whole. I think you were being pressured into giving up half ownership in your house six months into a relationship when you still weren't over the horror show that was your last marriage. I think that's like fair. To, that's what it looks like to me. It looks like you weren't able to own those feelings. Maybe your freeze response, your fear of speaking up. You couldn't say, I'm sorry, it, it's too soon to talk about this. I'm not really over this. I don't know you that well yet. I want to get to know you. I like you. Let's just keep dating for a while. 
you could have done that, but that would have been hard to say. And it sounds like anything like that disappoints him. So you didn't want to, and now you're psychologizing yourself, but I don't think you need to psychologize yourself. That is really fast to give someone half ownership of your house. Or presumably he was going to buy it. I don't know. I don't know what the arrangement was. I hope, I hope he wasn't proposing something unfair, but it's not happening now. In another incident, you spoke to a friend who was following the same spiritual teacher. You kind of blurted out, you should go. See, that's when you're recovering from a lifetime of abandonment and abuse, these types of questions, should I rush in and hold on to a relationship? Should I run off and be a spiritual person and retreat from the world? You know, should I be alone? Should I do this? Those are good questions. I just, I can really feel it in my bones. You have not had room to consider these questions. Those are good and real questions, especially at your age 50 and what you've been through and wanting to do something new and different with your life. Maybe you didn't want to just jump right in with some guy who had these strong opinions about how you should be. Hadn't you been like that before? So I'm kind of proud of you. So this friend said, well, she had gone and lived in the ashram and she said it was a beautiful prison. And, and then you said to Mark and repeated it. And he said, are you implying our relationship is a prison? And you said, well, I, I need to make sure that it's not. And, and, and he said it could only be an implication. No, it couldn't. I think it sounds like it was what it was. You, you just said, I think you were saying, my friend saying that the ashram was a beautiful prison. I want to make sure that our relationship isn't a prison because I did that before for my entire youth and I don't have time for that anymore, right? Good for you. Good, Caitlin. That's correct. <laughs> it could have been a prison. It was right to take your time. It seems like you're, you're, be you're better angels. Your, your wisdom about what's best for yourself, you have trouble expressing it directly, so it gets blurted out as sort of a contradiction to the other thing you were saying. And I get that Mark didn't like that. Who would, right? It's like, I thought you were into me. Wait, what's this? You want to go be a monk? Or, you know, what? it would be very confusing and a disappointment. And, you know, he pulled away, and that's okay. He has a very definite idea about what he wants, and he seems it to want it to happen very quickly. And people get to do that. They get to set those goals for themselves. So you said there's probably more that you did, but he would ask you for reassurance all the time and you couldn't give it. And it would take you a few days to produce the reassurance he was looking for. But he correctly notes that it doesn't really count if it was that hard to come up with. It's just not the nature of the relationship. It's not a secure little nest that he can hop into right now, which is what he's hoping for. So it's not that, but that doesn't mean you did anything wrong. <laughs> It's possible, Caitlin, that you're doing everything right. You're trying to have a relationship, but really what's coming through in your healing is that still small voice that goes, I need more time. I don't feel total trust in this situation. I'm not sure what I can give. I do not want to end up in a beautiful prison. That's a coherent statement and appropriate for where you are. Okay. So you say it, it, you know, you couldn't respond to his cries for reassurance and it destabilized him also. So... I, I relate to that. I have been that person, but from where I sit now, somebody who gets all destabilized from an early relationship with a recent divorcee uh, because they can't give reassurance right now, I could see somebody saying, I don't like that. That's not what I want. Okay, fair enough. But it destabilizes him. That sounds very unstable to me. So I, I, just, I just say, don't fault yourself here. 
He said he wondered why he wasn't important to you. He sounds like he has uh, some issues there. And I'm not criticizing, like that's what we have here. We have these trauma issues. But that's like, I'm not important to you, I'm not this. And well, why would he be? It's only been six months. Um, and I, I hear, I don't know. Yes, you were inconsistent. So let's focus on you. You were inconsistent because you weren't ready to give that level of commitment. You did nothing wrong by trying out a relationship. I'm so glad you had that experience. The only art of it that's needed now is to be able to get through the end of it and carry on with your healing so that one day you will be more healed and you will be more ready for a proper loving relationship. And you just weren't. It's, nobody can be ready until they're ready. So, so you're good, you're in a good place. I also, then you went on and you psychologized yourself and this, it sounds to me like he was putting pressure on you to talk to your mom with some sort of idea that you need to confront your mom about how she made you feel with that. All right, I'm gonna give you a contrary opinion. Your mother sounds very self-centered and lacking in empathy towards you in fundamental ways and that it hasn't changed. And I suspect, based on my little window of your world here, but based on what you're telling me, I think it's very unlikely that confronting her about that would go well. I think it's really unlikely it would turn into her going, really, did, did that make you feel that way? Oh, now I see it, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, what a terrible thing for a mother to do to a 15-year-old girl. You must have been terrified. We left you no choice, you know, we hijacked your life. Um, we treated you like you were a shameful object. I don't think that's what she would do. She does not strike me as somebody capable of that. She, when it's about telling your siblings about how ashamed you are, she's eager to help you with that. And that really bothered me, Caitlin. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be ashamed of, you know? Oh, did you have sex at 15? Well, welcome to the world. Welcome to this generation. You know, it's not ideal to get pregnant, but it happens all the time. And your parents, made a decision for you to go ahead and have the baby and then shame the crap out of you for having this normal function of sexuality, a boy in your life, fertility, you know, it's not ideal. It's if we never had trauma, we could probably figure out a clever way to do everything in the right order, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but we didn't, we can't. And there's a reason for that. And even people who aren't traumatized have accidental pregnancies. And I just am so, so sorry that you got this message that you were a terrible, shameful person, that you were dead to them. That's so much about them and not you. And no wonder you had to stuff down this experience and no wonder grief is coming back now. And I celebrate you having all the time you need to kind of deal with what happened. And I don't know, maybe one time you'll make contact, but that's the thing about um, adopted, kids or adopt, you know, kids that were adopted or parents who were the birth mother. It doesn't always go the way everybody hoped. These are tricky relationships. So no pressure. The beautiful thing about healing your trauma, and I happen to know that you use the techniques, you use the daily practice, you get support in our community, and I'm so proud of you and happy about that. And um, I'm confident and I know that you are experiencing some some relief and some clarity coming into your mind about what does it all mean? How do you really feel about stuff? And so all of these traumas and the losses and including this guy who had this idea of what he wanted and you're not like that, not, not yet and maybe not ever, but you're beautiful and good. You're beautiful and good and blameless and 
uh, I don't believe that you need to confront your mom. If you want to, you can. But the, hard, the thing is, if she's going to just use it as an opportunity to lay into you about stuff or shame you again, I'm just not sure that's helpful or productive. Um, I don't, I'm not somebody who was, a, you know, I, I, had, I had abuse and neglect as a kid. And I did try confronting uh, my mother and others who were responsible for what happened. And it went terribly. I was kicked out of the house. And that's why I have a pretty strong opinion that it doesn't always work and that people who haven't been through that kind of trauma, they don't get it. Like if they would do that in their family with their parents and go, hey, you really hurt me, it would be different, right? But that's not how it is. Like we know that. We know that about these parents. And that doesn't mean you can't heal. That's some sort of weird equation. Throw all those old equations out of like, in order to heal, you must confront. Not true. In order to heal, you must become fully yourself and learn to process your emotions, your stress, and your dysregulation in a constructive way and learn to find comfort and ease within yourself no matter what's going on. That's how you're going to recover and to have friends who support you along the way. Isn't it beautiful that you're already doing what works? Talking to your mother is an option. It, it, it sounds from what you're saying, and again, I don't hear his side of the story and I don't need to because he's gone. Um, but it, you say it sounds like a sickening task to speak to her about it. Listen to yourself. You, your voice counts. Your voice is the only voice that counts in your decision to do this. There's no need to do it. When you said you've become an extreme people pleaser and you cognitively understand that your mother's the one you're people pleasing, I think you were people pleasing Mark. You were trying to be the good patient who does what he thinks is necessary. You don't have to please him at all. You get to never do this. You get to do it in your own time. You get to, you get to do whatever you want to do. And other people can discover you, the person, and let go and allow you to live your life and heal as you heal and love you along the way if, they're, if they've got the heart, if they've got the heart to do it. So it, I'm sure it's a lot to deal with right now. And there's nothing sadder than losing love when it felt like it was going to work out. I know. Now well, there's things that are sadder, but it, that's a big one. And so I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, it doesn't sound like the one. And so I, I, I can tell you have so much love to give and you have so much healing to do and your whole life. It's not funny how after the age of 50, everything can actually start getting better and we can come into full color and blossom at last. I'm very proud of you. How good that this is happening for you. If anybody is watching this and you want to do some healing on your ability to meet somebody and date in a measured way that's healthy, considering your CPTSD, I've got a course that's all about that. I walk you through the path that I followed and that I've developed over the years by coaching others. And it's called the Dating and Relationships Course for People with Childhood PTSD. I always think I need a more interesting name, but that's what it's called. It's work that's very near and dear to my heart and it helps you identify ways that you might have distorted thinking that gets you into relationships with people who aren't truly workable or available to you and how to set yourself up to succeed instead by going slowly. I call it structured dating. There's a sign I look for to see if someone is healing from the huge scope of problems that are caused by growing up traumatized. And it's one you're almost not, never supposed to talk about. Now, it's true that one of the first steps of healing is to fully see that what happened to you was abuse, that you were hurt and it wasn't your fault. That's important to know, but the problems don't stop there. 
the reason trauma persists in this world, the reason it's so often passed from parents to children, is because people who were abused and neglected as kids can often, without realizing it, grow up and hurt the people around them. And if you have CPTSD and you've begun to heal, it's a sign of healing if you're becoming aware of that and feeling the pangs of your own conscience urging you to do something about that, about when you have hurt other people. My letter today is from a woman who commented the other day on my YouTube channel, and I'll call her Mila. And she writes, Hi, Anna. I wish you could make a video on how one can forgive themselves when they've been emotionally abusive as a result of CPTSD. How can a person heal from the fact that they have bestowed their misery onto other people unknowingly, at least in my case? I'm still in my 20s. I could even say that I almost am a narcissist if I hadn't woken up. I'm circling some things I want to talk about with my fairy pen, <laughs> and I will come back. I'm going to read Mila's comment all the way through, and then I'll, I'll come back and say some stuff about things I circled. She says, I had an ex who put up with me for three years, and looking back, I really didn't give him the best treatment. I treat my acquaintances better, she says. When I watch your videos about people crap-fitting to toxic relationships, crap-fitting is when you fit yourself to bad things, to crap. <laughs> uh, when I watch your videos about people crap-fitting to toxic relationships, I remember this guy. Only when he left me for good did I understand that I was the problem. It's been two years since the breakup. I wish I could have given him my best because he deserved it, even if it didn't work out in the end. I never have dated anyone since. I always felt like a terrible person and incapable of love. I felt like I don't deserve love because I wasted the opportunity and I had a warm, pure love go down the drain. I also fear that no one will love me the way he did. But still, I want to share my life with someone, always. For context, my mom died when I was only seven. Then my dad left us siblings, all girls, to relatives where we suffered emotional and sexual abuse. The only thing that saved us was me being intellectually gifted. I was able to get paid scholarships, which helped us siblings finish school and be working professionals. So I'm someone who has a strong personality. And people say that men nowadays like soft women. And maybe this is the reason I feel I can't find anyone. I'm also studying to embrace femininity. Uh, I've pursued remote work to prepare for the possibility of motherhood, though I have not been dating actively. Thank you for reading, and your comments are very welcome. All right, Mila, I think I can help. How to forgive yourself. Um, I just want to say that the fact that you have recovered enough that you're thinking back and going, oh, wow, I created problems, and, and my ex did not deserve that. This is remarkable, beautiful recovery. This is progress. If you were emotionally abusive to your ex, and I don't know exactly what you did, but you say you didn't treat him well, you're not alone. A lot of people with CPTSD do that. And what so many of us would describe about how that ends up 
you know, happening is our dysregulation, emotional and neurological, really just sort of gets out of control. So something stressful happens and, you know, let's face it, relationships have stress, right? Sometimes you feel rejected. Sometimes you feel disappointed. Sometimes you feel like you've been left with all the responsibility. Sometimes you feel abandoned. And for if you have, if you were traumatized, oh my gosh, your mom died when you were seven. That's so, so much, Mila. That's so, that's an abandonment at such a core level. And then you got sent off to relatives and you were abused there. You're a miracle. You're a miracle walking around who having relationships, getting scholarships, having a profession. This is so good, so amazing of you. And then there's this piece where through our trauma-driven behavior, through our unconsciousness while we were dysregulated, we hurt other people. And it's so confusing, isn't it? It's just so confusing. Now you're young, you're young yet. You're still in your 20s. And I promise you, if you carry on with the road of healing, you'll see more and more of this and you'll know more and more about how to deal with it. It's to, to be able to be as far as you are in your 20s, it really is remarkable. And I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You're a survivor. You, you have come so far. So how, here's how you forgive yourself. You begin to become aware as you are how you may have hurt other people. And it can be hard to know sometimes because sometimes we avoid responsibility a little too much. Sometimes we take responsibility a little too much. One thing that I have done before is like try to take so much responsibility because at least if it's all my fault, then I in theory have some control over the problem. And if I just get rejected like randomly again and again, I have no control over that or that's, that's the perception. And so I've always sort of been attracted to taking all the, you know, all, all or none. It's not my, it's never my fault, it's always my fault. So obviously neither of those is true. It takes two people to have a relationship, but he did leave you for good. And so it sounds like he didn't feel treated well enough. I think that's what you're, what you're saying. And it's not uncommon for relationships in our 20s, even for people who don't have CPTSD, to just last for a certain amount of time and then end. You know, we don't always get it right the first time. So first, I just want you to trust that love is out there. Love is possible for you. Love can only get better as you heal your trauma symptoms. We can't take away the fact that you lost your mom or the abuse that happened, but you can start to have healing of how those experiences have affected you. So that, you know, with your mom, that, that fundamental abandonment and that terror that a seven-year-old girl would feel, that you start to have healing around that, that the way that it affected your nervous system and made you have to be so tough, right? So strong, yeah? <laughs> Thank God you were strong. Thank God you were strong, Mila. I'm a strong girl too. And believe me, this, <laughs> we'll get to that. Strong is beautiful. Strong is good. Strong has, it has this side to it that can be harsh, that can be kind of controlling, that can be sharp, abrasive, yes. But strong is strength. And with healing, strong becomes sturdiness, reliability, honesty, wisdom. So your ability, you know, I, in my family, they're, they're you know, we had a lot of trauma and everybody dealt with it a little differently, all the kids. And there's trauma also in some of my cousins' families and stuff too. You can just sort of look around like people took on different roles. So I tried to be a super achiever. I got great grades. I relate to the story you're telling. And then later, you know, later when I was about 30, everything just started to fall apart. I just couldn't do it anymore. 
and um, others of other people in my family, you know, they just got into like drugs and alcohol and they just gave up. Some of them got violent. Some of them um, committed crimes. Some of them just spaced out, just totally checked out and la la la, you know, and didn't accomplish very much. So everybody handles it in different ways. I guess I feel grateful that my adaptation was to be controlling and try to get some money because while, while we were all working out our trauma wounds, <laughs> at least mine paid the rent, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's that. <laughs> There's that. But it doesn't work in relationships. And eventually, everybody's going to have to face their trauma wounds. And if they can, try to recover from them. So there's a softening that happens. There's a distinction that happens, uh, some discernment between between trying to make everything okay and trying to show up and be strong and allow things to fall into place in a way that includes other people's opinions and needs. Does that make sense to you? So that's not controlling. And so I, all my life, I've remained in something like um, the role of somebody who's a bit of a pillar. If, all right, now I want to talk about the love you experienced with this guy. So if it was that warm and pure, <laughs> and you were 20 when you got into it, I just say hats off that you had a first relationship with somebody who was warm and where there was some pure love there. That's beautiful. That's good. It really is not all the love in the world. It feels like that. That's so much of the, like the loss of mother wound talking, because there is no other mother. Can't get that back. But you can meet somebody new and somebody who fits you now. This guy, you know, his mistake, <laughs> his mistake was meeting you when you didn't have all this healing in place, right? You just weren't there yet. And I, I believe you, I'm just going to take you at face value that he didn't deserve the unkind way that you treated him. And I've done the same thing and I know about that. So I believe very strongly in apologizing. When we know we've done something wrong, it takes some time to get very clear, like what was it exactly? And so this daily practice I teach where you put your fears and resentments on paper, it's a, it's a way that you can start like moving the bad feeling through about, because like feeling ashamed or guilty, that's, that's resentment itself. So I'm resentful at myself because I have fear I treated this person badly, fear I said this, fear I ruined the relationship, fear, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of shorthanding it because <clears throat> a lot of people watching have learned this technique. If you haven't yet, the course is free. It's down in the description section, the link, or you can go to my website, Crappy Childhood Fairy. The Daily Practice, that's the name, free course. You can learn and try these techniques in, in an hour. And then there's a ton of like FAQ videos. And there's I lead free Zoom calls every uh, couple of weeks for anybody who has taken the course and would like to come and do, use the techniques together with me. And I answer questions about it. And I, you know, this is like the most exciting thing in my life. When I learned these techniques, it started to enable me to start solving my life problems. I got re-regulated, even though I didn't have a word for it then. And then I could start solving these problems. And a lot of my problem was the way I treated other people. And so I am grateful for these techniques. I want to stand on the rooftops and say, I have a way. I have a way to get all this, you know, crunched up, traumatized feelings moving down the assembly line, processed, moving along, coming into present time and being able to have a new and more peaceful experience, to be more yourself. And yourself is a perfectly good person. Yourself, when it's not driven by trauma, you know, is capable of being kind and loving and setting boundaries and saying no and, you know, actually being harsh when it's appropriate, when it's appropriate, you'll have discernment. So that comes over time with using tools that help you re-regulate and process all the all the negative thinking up there, 
and with the support of other people. Now you don't say it here, but why do I have a feeling that you're isolated, that you don't have support of women? Do you have support of women? So for women to have the support of other women is so powerful. And they can't just be anybody. They can't be mean people. They can't be people who denigrate your healing or make fun of your problems. People who are also on a path of healing, who are also flawed like you, like me, these are good companions to talk about, you know, things you're working on to say, hey, I recognize that I was really harsh on my ex. You know, if you go talk to people who are still in, in, in that world, they'll be like, oh, you can never be too harsh. You should be as mean as possible. I would just tell, I'd block, you know. So you can deal with, you can get advice from those people or you can get advice from people who are healing too and start learning a more nuanced way to be fair and honest and kind and real. So with apologies, Apologies are powerful. I learned this from people I know in, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, where it's a huge piece of how to get sober, is um, after a, a period of other steps and work, there's this step called the ninth step where people go and apologize to people they've harmed, you know, pay money back, admit what they did wrong. And there's some, you know, there's some guardrails around that to do it sensibly. And so here's the thing about exes. Sometimes you need to do all the work of preparing to apologize, but it's not always right to make contact with them. And I'll tell you the big dividing line. If they are in a relationship or they might be in a relationship, do not make contact with them. Because if they have contact with you, and especially with the emotional content of, of uh, an apology where finally they hear maybe what they were waiting to hear, it's disruptive to their relationship. So it's not a good thing to do to them. It actually could cause more harm. And above all, don't do more harm when you're apologizing to people. So sometimes the apology is to stay away. But here's something that happened with me one time. I knew that I could not contact somebody because um, they, uh, they very likely could be in a relationship, an ex of mine. And I did all the work. I did all the work. And I went through and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote all the fears and resentments. I shared with my buddy. Do you know what a buddy is? A buddy is somebody who also does the daily practice. And you can read to them sometimes what you wrote. And they basically just witness it. You can ask them for their opinion, but they don't automatically give it to you. Sometimes you just share it with another person. And it goes a long way to help you kind of get clarity. And the dust settles. And you can kind of hear yourself talking. And you're like, this part's not reasonable. This part's more important than I realized. That's, that's what clarity is like. So buddies kind of help you get there just by their existence. So um, you can also get a mentor, which is something more where somebody does advise. You could do that. And you, 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 you run it by them first and say, this is what I think I did wrong. And you read to them what you wrote, your fears and resentments you have about it. You read to them. And you can ask their opinion. And you get a reality check. Because there's a lot of temptation when you're apologizing either to you know, just smooth it over and just be like, I'm really sorry. I, I was so, you know, I was yelled at you and called you a dick face so many times in public. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. I guess that bothered you, you know, if I did that. <laughs> we all know those types of apologies cause offense. They don't help anything. So a more proper apology is um, to be prepared, even if you don't have the opportunity to say it face to face, to be prepared to admit, you know, I've been working on myself and I realized that the way I treated you was cruel and unkind. I remember even calling you names. And that's wrong. 
And I know that if somebody had done that to me, I would have felt demeaned and hurt, and it would have given me a lot of fear about whether or not to stay in the relationship. And I know that I caused you a lot of pain with that. I'm working on myself, and I am trying to develop the knowledge and the strength to never do that to people again. Uh, and I just wanted you to know that I was wrong, and I hope you can forgive me. And then you just let it go. And here's what happens when you say that to somebody, if you have the opportunity. And you know, with, with non-exes, with people who you haven't slept with, who, where it's not a big threat to their current relationship, you can have the opportunity to say that. But the elements that I just went through, I was like, hi, this is, I'm working on myself. I, I realized quite clearly that I hurt you. Then you describe what you did and you demonstrate that you understand what that was like for them by saying what it would be like for you if somebody did that. You remind them again, I'm trying to change that about myself and I hope you can forgive me. You can say that, I hope you can. You don't demand forgiveness, you don't stick around until they say yes, they forgive you. They may or may not, and honestly a lot of people, they'll say, oh yeah, 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 sure, I, no, oh, it never bothered me at all. It, it can be very emotionally intense and kind of intimidating and awkward when you're having this conversation. That's why a lot of people never apologize. It is, it is intense, it can be awkward, but it's very important and good for you to admit, to just admit honestly what you did. Because once you have that off your chest, and, and again, we don't take things off our chest when it would hurt other people. So you never say, you know, you didn't know this, but I told everyone you know about that funny thing you do in bed, right? You don't say that. You never hurt anybody further and you don't tell them things that would hurt them. So it's really, you're trying to give them peace about something. You're trying to show up honestly and show that you realize what it was. Because what happens when, especially in romantic relationships, when one person hurts the other person, is there's just inherently kind of a, a fogginess, a bit of <laughs> gaslighty energy with that. So one person hurts another and the other one can't help but blame themselves a little bit. So you're setting them free and just be like, this is what I did. Now for everybody watching, of course it's a two-way street. Of course when you hurt somebody there was stuff they did to you. But when you do a proper apology, you don't even bring that up. That is not your business to bring up. The relationship's over. There's no reason to excavate what they did. You are setting, you are setting the record straight that you get it now that you were hurtful and you're sorry. And so you can say, I hope you forgive me, but it's not a conditional thing. There's no need. They can just say, hey, get out of my face. I hate you for what you did. I never want to talk to you again. You just get out of their way. You just do, you just do that. You're done. The minute you say what you had to say, you're done. And with an ex, it's not appropriate then to go, hey, should we go have coffee? Don't do that. Don't do that. Just let the apology and the request for forgiveness stand and then, you know, lovingly exit. And that's it. That's it, we have no business hanging out with exes, especially when there was heartbreak going on, all right? So um, the exception would be if this is like somebody you were married to and there's kids or a house that you own together, or things like that. So things do need to be talked about, but by the time now, two years later, you're having this awareness, it's, you know, you don't wanna get things all wound up again. And if you're not 100% certain he's not in a relationship, don't contact him, and in fact, I would bless you not contacting him in any case, just because when people have had their heart broken, it can be very disruptive to hear from the person again. So um, it really helps to talk to a wise friend, a mentor about that before you make your move to do it. But let's say you can't 
tell him because you know you know that he's in a relationship or or with people who have died you can't what you do is you do the work anyway you prepare you figure out what you would say you write it down and you have it there so that's what happened to me one time is well when i first learned about how to apologize i ran out and started apologizing like crazy to exes because I hadn't had any other healing. I just was like, is there some way? I was so ashamed of myself. <laughs> but I really didn't understand what I had done wrong or anything. I just wanted everybody to like me again. And I was probably trying to stir things up. And so I wanted to contact everybody. And that was not received well. And then years went by. And I did more of the work of realizing what I had done wrong. And there was one particular person, like, I was never really into them, but I clung to them anyway because I just needed somebody. and. Um, you know, that really hurt them, it was wrong. And I had always been saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in love with you, I don't want a relationship, but okay, we can kind of be together sort of like this, you know. And it just was terrible. It, it ended up really hurting them, and then when they left, it ended up really hurting me, so it was really sick. And I finally did enough work that I could see what it was and how selfish I had been, but I wasn't gonna make contact. And then one day, I was, you know, riding my bike down the street, and, um, they walked right out in front of my bike. I had to like slam on the brakes. And I was like, oh, you, hi, hi. And, <laughs> and I said, I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, and I was able to say the complete apology. And they went, okay. <laughs> and I left, and that was it, that was it. <laughs> but I felt better. I felt better I could stop feeling ashamed of myself and I could forgive myself. So that's what you had asked me, is how does a person forgive themselves? And that's kind of how it's done. You need to take care of business and you need to refrain from making contact with people even if you're ready to tell them the truth. And do that with support from other people and use tools to get clarity about what happened so that you're neither, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I did everything, everything's my fault. You don't want to do that. Or like, I'm sorry you feel that way. You don't want to be that girl either, okay? You want to be honest and real and accurate as to the best of your ability. And you're gonna feel a lot better. So this thing where you said about soft women, I just wanna say, like, I've been criticized about that before too. And um, I just wanna tell you as one strong woman to another, please don't worry about that. Work on your character, work on being a good person, but never question that there's something wrong with your femininity. You know, who you are is who you are, and who you are is going to blossom and express itself as you have less fear and resentment and less concern about other people's criticism of, I mean, come on. <laughs> I remember, I had these roommates once. I'd lived there for a couple of months and one of the guys came up and said, the roommates don't really like you. And I said, why? He said, you don't have enough feminine energy. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> They said, well, you should like make popcorn and give it to everybody sometimes. And I was just like, F you. <laughs> I, don't want... I was very weird. Like, no, I was very weird. This is other people's thing. And everybody's idea, you know, gosh, being a woman, huh? Everybody has ideas about what that's supposed to be. But you, you are you. And who you are, who, who you are naturally, especially underneath all that's happened to you, is just extraordinary and beautiful and has yet is going to keep showing you over the years what's inside and all these colors inside you and abilities and talents and gifts and the capacity to love. I can already tell you're capable, you're wise, you're conscientious, you know, good things are coming for you. So forget other people's idea. Of course, different men love different kinds of women. Some women are very um, 
soft and that sort of like conventional feminine and some men really like that and some women are not like that at all and some men like that I have a lovely husband and uh, he likes me I'm like this <laughs> I'm like this he doesn't like it when I'm the harsh side of that coin you know I talked about that when you're very strong and you're not in a good space you can be very harsh right so of course he doesn't like that but I've had a lot of time to grow and work on myself. So my strength is my strength. My strength creates crappy childhood fairy. I wouldn't be here without that strength. We must be ourselves. That's what healing is. You become more yourself. And you know, some people they want to use, they want to use authenticity as a you know smokescreen for bad behavior. And we all know what that is, right? It's like, well, I have to disrupt Thanksgiving, you know, for the whole family because I have an announcement to make. Well, that's, nah, it's not really strength. It's not strength. It's, it's imprudent. <laughs> it's, it's a lack of wisdom. <laughs> it's not always smart to just make a big scene. So wisdom starts teaching you when and how to have a conversation to set things right or to express yourself and when and how to just show up and let things be. That's wisdom. So wisdom and strength. And I just, you know, something that comes to mind for me is like some of the, um, the, the goddesses of Greek or Roman mythology, right? Look at them. <laughs> the goddess of love herself, you know, she's just like mighty. <laughs> she's very, very strong and big. So pff, you don't have to be soft. You don't have to change yourself. The last thing I want to talk about with, for you is um, this thing about pursuing remote work when you're not dating actively. I'm going to just flat out tell you, one of the best things that you can do if having children is what you want is to get married first. It, I, as somebody who spent nine years as a single mom, I'm speaking from experience, um, it's like night and day to have a partner when you're raising children versus doing it all by yourself. That's just you. For a child, having only one parent can be, um, it's, it's highly correlated with a lot of difficulties in life, no matter how great your mom is. You know, if you don't have that other parent, it, there's a lot of hardship in store there. And so, so many of us here were raised by one or no parents, right? So I'm not knocking, I'm not trying to put down anybody, I'm just saying that you're in your 20s, you have the opportunity to make choices here, and I'm just gonna really encourage you to do this the way that best supports children which is to be married, to be in a committed relationship, to have that financial and emotional stability, and to marry somebody really great who loves you for who you are. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's the most important thing. And um, if you're wondering like how you meet somebody like that, I have this dating course you can take. It's dating and relationships for people with childhood PTSD. And I couldn't get this information anywhere out there, but for people who have attachment wounds and like how could you not? My course teaches you how to set up guardrails for yourself so that you can really get information about somebody. You can get clear about what you want before you even begin dating, what you need. For, like, if, if your dream is to be married and have kids, then there are certain characteristics that are must-haves and certain characteristics that are no way. And you've got to stop dating the people who don't have that. And I don't know, it sounds like you dated a nice person. So you're well on your way. But you don't want to waste time on people who are impossible and not aligned with what you want. You need to be aligned with yourself, honest with yourself about what you want and capable of being honest with, with your partner about what you want. And then you can figure that out quickly and handle your relationship accordingly. That's how to do it. 
if you grew up in a crazy family like you, like me, you know, you're not going to, you just, nobody teaches you this. So here it is for you. It's called Dating and Relationships for People with Complex PTSD. But that's what I talk about. And the link is down below always under the courses in the description section, also on my website. So I wish you well, Mila. I, I have a good feeling about you. I think you're going to go far. I think you're going to find love. And um, I hope every blessing of life comes your way. Honestly, I feel ashamed of all the times someone mistreated me, and instead of getting away from them, I danced around trying to make them like me. It's embarrassing, and it also makes no sense. It's called fawning. And in fact, it's one of the four trauma responses that include fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And fawning is when you make yourself small, and you act tough, or you try to influence the person. You act so nice because they're mistreating you. And through your sheer goodness or through being helpful, you, you know, the selfless helper, you try to almost heal the person who's behaving badly by just taking it from them, not showing them that it hurts you. Have you done that? It's a common pattern for a traumatized person. But the thing is, it usually progresses to a strong mental vagueness where you can't tell at all if it's you who's causing terrible interactions. So, you know, you, the, you, you maybe had trauma in your childhood, you learned to fawn, keep your parent happy, you grow up, and then now you're vague. You're like, I keep getting into these things where I feel like I'm sort of getting abused, but I can't tell if it's my fault. Is it just me? Am I too picky? Am I the difficult person? Or am I a doormat? Because either way, you don't feel good about yourself. And for that matter, the fawning energy doesn't make people like you. You know, it's a people pleasing, but they're not pleased. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Vanessa, and she writes, Dear Anna, I've seen some of your YouTube videos about being attracted to the wrong people or trying to make crappy romantic relationships work. I've written off romance years ago for various reasons, but I still have problems with just casual everyday relationships. All right, got the fairy pencil. I'm going to circle some things I want to come back to on a second reading, but let's read through what Vanessa's, what the story she's telling us here about what's going on. I'm not even talking friendship, although I do have a hard time making friends. I'm talking about acquaintances I see on a regular basis. Even when someone is rude to me, instead of ignoring them or dropping them, I keep trying to make them like me or telling myself their behavior isn't that bad and returning to them. This has been a lifelong pattern with me. Ah, this is so interesting to me. I, I hear you. All right. Off the top of my head, Vanessa says, the most prevalent example I can give you is my hairdresser. Thanks to fights I've had with my mother over my hair and still have, even though I'm 50 years old, doing anything with it is always a problem for me. What I'll do is... I'll find a competent hairdresser who's incredibly rude to me. And instead of leaving that person and finding someone better, I'll keep going and trying to make the hairdresser like me. I had to fight with the last hairdresser just to get him to do what I wanted him to do. After my last appointment, I walked out of the salon after over-tipping him, uh-huh, which is customary. I so hear you. And mulling it over at home, I decided I'm not going back to this jerk. He talks over me, he interrupts me, contradicts me, and is very brusque overall. Here I've been trying so hard to get him to like and acknowledge me when I walk into the salon. I also go there for threading and waxing, she says, okay? And he's not all that friendly back. Now when I think back, I feel like an idiot for doing it. Then Vanessa says, I had a similar experience with a very rude and bigoted hairdresser many years ago. 
And I kept going back to her, even though our conversations were painful. And she was so incredibly rude and dismissive. And I went to her for two years. <laughs> At least I got smart with this guy after a few months. And when I am treated badly or rejected, instead of walking away, I always stick around and sort of beg people to like me. And I hate that about myself, she says. I'd also like to mention that I recently spent a month baby and dog sitting for my brother when my sister-in-law was ready to give birth to their second child and he was verbally abusive all the time I was there. There were times when I wondered if I deserved it. Friends I've confided to when I got back said they would have bought a plane ticket home after the first week, but I hung in there because I knew he needed me. I'm just mad at myself for taking it and not shutting him down. I could see he was under a lot of stress, but I shouldn't let myself be abused by someone who is stressed. But as angry as I am at him, I also feel sorry for him and frustrated with myself and my roller coaster emotions. How do I straighten myself out? <laughs> she says, Anna Runkle, you, LOL, has my permission to read this letter. You know, pe when people write to me, I ask for permission. All right, Vanessa, thank you. I'm laughing so much. I just love your letter. I thought about it for a while, and <laughs> I just didn't know what to say. So first of all, I just believe you 100%. Usually we talk about crap fitting. That's when you fit yourself to unacceptable people in situations. And most commonly, people with CPTSD would do it in romance. But we do it in friendships, and we do it with professional services, too, because there's some mentality there that if everything just feels terrible and weird, it must be us, <laughs> or, we or we better take what we can get, because that's all there's going to be. But there is this kind of strange almost metaphysical aspect of what you're talking about. Fawning is actually a very negative energy. It's a negative interaction and it doesn't feel good to be fond. People don't end up liking you because you're people pleasing them, you know. And so when somebody fawns, and you know, from time to time I've fawned, and from time to time people have fawned on me, and I really have very little tolerance for fawning. It is so uncomfortable for me because somebody's like dancing around, they're trying to make me happy, they're interrupting everything I say. They're literally not listening. They're just so like trying to anticipate what my need is going to be and what, what, I, what I'm going to say. It's so uncomfortable for me. And I end up frustrated and I end up shutting down and pulling away. So for the fawner, if you're sensing irritated energy, that's all I'm gonna give you is that, is, is it partly you? There's one way that it's possibly partly you that we bring to it. But most of all, it's that we're in, a, we're in a fake idea that if we can just dance around and ignore, you know, be a martyr, be a really, really successful martyr, like a star level martyr where we can just take it, I can take it. <laughs> I, this is a little story. When I was young, I applied for a secretarial job, and I put on my, on my letter, I'm thick-skinned. And I, I think the previous job I had had was very abusive. And I was trying to say, I can put up with anything, and I have no feelings about it. And I remember the person who interviewed with me said, that's not a good thing. Don't say that. <laughs> and I was like, what? I get it now. You don't want to be too thick-skinned. Obviously, we don't want to be oversensitive. And this is what it's like to have complex PTSD, is you're confused all the time. Like, am I being oversensitive? This is bothering me. But we end up with these really weird, uncomfortable, hurtful situations with people, and we don't know how we got there. And so the answer is going to be little steps. It's going to be little steps where your part in it is to start getting really honest from moment to moment about what you're feeling, what just happened, and connecting with other people who are on the healing journey 
just like you so that you can get a reality check. Like tell them, what did the hairdresser say? Was it me? Should I, you know, was I too prickly? Like it does take a lot of self-honesty to just admit, were you fawning? Were you, did you have a chip on your shoulder? Were you, you know, is there something that you're doing? But I tell you with CPTSD, we, we sometimes just find ourselves magically drawn to these recreations of the drama that we once had where we don't get to have boundaries. This thing where your mother criticized your hair <laughs> and you never got to feel good about it. So when we get triggered, even when it's like an old emotional flashback or an unconscious memory about something, I, I'll speak for myself. I have prickly energy. I come off as sort of like defensive and difficult. For the person who's in the position of cutting the hair or styling the hair of such a person, it can be fraught, it can be stressful. They can feel defensive. So you may be bringing out a negativity just because you're having an emotional flashback about it. So there are also terrible people out there. They're very unkind, they're bigoted, they're, you know, they're just rude. But I would just say if you're seeing two hairdressers who are both rude, there's, I, it, does, it sort of smells like a situation where your old trigger is coming up and maybe playing a role in this, either shutting you down to be a martyr or making you have fawning energy that's uncomfortable. And fawning energy almost has to be met by irritable, impatient energy. Please, 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 come on, stop, 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 right? It's, we, sort of can, we sort of invite that sort of snippy response to it. So perhaps I'm fishing, perhaps I'm overreaching. Forgive me if I'm way off base, but I will say that's true in my case. When I have fawned and when people have fawned on me, it does make me very irritated with them. I don't tend to stay friends with people who fawn. It's too uncomfortable for me. So I think you're, it's Vanessa, it's your healing. Your healing is just gonna get you there without whether you cognitively figure out why this is happening or not. And so much of our CPTSD healing is like that. We never get perfect answers. Why do I do this? Why is this hard for me? I, by the way, had haircut stuff too. I used to always um, like not just get dysregulated, but pretty much dissociate in the chair getting my hair done. I don't even know why exactly. I had, I remember when I was 13 once, somebody really messed up my hair. It was burned with a perm and then it had like a bowl cut in the front and it was a very crazy bowl cut mullet with a bad perm and it took over a year to grow. It could have been that, but it feels deeper than that. Um, a fear, like a sense of distrust and a fear that I can't speak up and say what I want. So when I read your letter, I just resonated so strongly I had to think about it for a while to go, yeah, what is that? So I hope this has been helpful. Whatever, you know, sometimes we never know the answer about why we are the way we are, but the solution is the same anyway. We learn to calm our triggers. We learn to express our true and real selves to be able to like set boundaries and say, hey, don't do that. This is what I want to be able to, you know, like the uncomfortable conversation about how much is it going to cost? And, um, it, you know, could maybe somebody else in the salon do this one because what happened last time with you didn't go so well. All that stuff is so uncomfortable. People who have had trauma think that they can't have the conversation. And so these emotions get pent up and they get pent up and then they make everything, you know, even more intense. Um, than it otherwise would be. And then our, our behaviors might not make any sense. So healing, healing, becoming real. I'll say this about every kind of CPTSD problem. You need good tools to get real and name what the feelings are that are coming up. Just name them. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to like turn them into anything better. You just name them. I have fear. <laughs> That this, you know, that I'm going to get ripped off. I'm resentful at this hair cutter 
because I have fear, they're bigoted and fear they're insulting me and fear they don't respect me and fear I'm an idiot to spend my money here. I'm just sort of like putting into the language of my daily practice some stuff you said. I encourage you, do the daily practice. It's a free, it's a technique I teach free in a course. I'll link it at the very end of this course and it's also on my website, it's in the description section. And if you sign up for my daily practice, you not only learn the writing and meditation techniques, but you get invited to free calls with me on Zoom every two weeks. And it just goes on and on and on. You never have to buy anything, you can just come to this. I do have things that you can buy, but I, I, it, it is my mission to share with everyone who would benefit from it, this daily practice that just saved me from myself and has freed me to start to have a life and to be real and to flourish. Some people who were abused or neglected in childhood have a tendency to cling to relationships, but other people have the opposite problem. They push people away. Now, if you've ever run away from a good partner who loved you and known that pain. Maybe you got overwhelmed and triggered by the intensity or you got fearful about being so close to somebody and you slipped into avoiding behaviors like disappearing on them, giving them the silent treatment, lashing out at them so that they would leave or damaging their trust in you. Just know there is a way to change that pattern, to stop fleeing and learn to stay happily in a relationship that you want to be in. I'm Anna Runkle, also known as the Crappy Childhood Fairy, and I teach people who were traumatized as kids to calm their PTSD triggers and grow into better relationships. And I can show you how you can better handle the day-to-day -day ups and downs that all relationships go through that can be so triggering for somebody who had trauma in the past, and to get through that without getting emotionally overwhelmed and needing to make impulsive decisions to leave or lash out. Now, I'm talking about this today because I got this beautiful letter from a woman I'll call Nina, and she writes, Dear Anna, I've only recently come to terms with the truth that my childhood was mostly void of emotional connection or support. My invisible normal, she calls it. <laughs> my parents divorced when I was about 10. She was the oldest of four. My father was an active military officer from the time of my birth until my high school graduation, so we moved constantly between our parents' many homes and my father's duty stations. Every connection was temporary. Every attachment equaled some form of eventual sadness and loss in that sort of scenario. As a child and young adult, I also dealt with rejection and condemnation at home and elsewhere for my gender expression and later my sexual orientation so hard. In my earliest dating relationships, late teens, early 20s, I would cling, idealize, and obsess, probably because I was so emotionally and affectionately validation-starved as a child. And that starvation really intensified the feelings of early love and of loss in breakups significantly. And at some point, a scale was tipped inside me. Instead of clinging to relationships, I started to mentally, emotionally, and physically withdraw at any sign that a relationship might become destabilized. They were small, unnoticeable ways of detaching at first, building slowly to blow-ups of epic proportion. Instead of working through often fixable issues, subconsciously, I would begin flashing red, thinking, here comes the pain and suffering. This attachment will disappear soon like all the others. You shouldn't have trusted it. Take cover. 
And it's become so intense that I've more or less sabotaged my last two relationships. Each were six or seven years long. And sabotage them by combinations of running away, emotionally vacating, causing conflict myself in extreme cases. And, and Nina says she's a normally passive person. And ultimately, by having affairs. I believe I did this in order to create a protective emotional distance around myself and to be in charge, to be the controller and the perceived inevitable pain of the perceived impending loss of the intimate bond. The higher the stakes in love, the bigger the bomb. It's very embarrassing to admit this. It's something I've felt terrible shame and guilt over. I've suffered additional grief over hurting people I cared about along with myself. That's the thing though, my subconscious alarm system is driving me out of instinct, even though my actions have gone against my own morals, even though I swore to myself I would never do it again after the first time it happened. I was hoping maybe you could give some advice. Thank you, Nina. Oh, Nina, I'm so sorry. You got a bad hand of cards and I don't think anybody could have gotten through the childhood you're describing where you get completely invalidated for being who you are and moved around, just constantly moved around so that, you know, a lot of us maybe didn't have that connection with parents. That's common with people with CPTSD. But if you can't also have friends, that is the double whammy that is, it's, it's devastating. And I can, I, I actually think you've done amazingly well. You've done really well. You've had a couple of long-term relationships. You have this incredible self-awareness here. Uh, you, you seem to understand very closely how your mind works, what happens in your feelings, how it's connected to what happened. So all that you're like, you're like right there on the ramp to taking off and getting free. So I'm really proud of you. What we're talking about here are attachment wounds. And I think you know that attachment wounds um, are the sort of like s spiritual, psychic and neurological damage that happen to kids when they, they don't have parents paying proper attention to them and giving them that unconditional love and validation. All right. You didn't get to have that. You didn't get to have that. And so it's understandable. It's not your fault that you have difficulty in this area. And sometimes I like to think of these as it's a developmental delay, right? <laughs> You've, there's so many parts of you that are mature and wise here, but it sounds like there's a little area that got kind of frozen in time and you didn't get to totally develop that area. And so when you've had these longer term relationships, the way things get intense at that point, the way you really have to count on somebody just starts to trigger something all the way over. And you know, probably I'm going to imagine that, these relationships, though they lasted, there were signs of your, of your avoidant stuff like all along, right? Uh, am I right? So it was probably there all along, but these people loved you and they stuck by you and they kept trying to work it out. And then something happened that you just, that it really blew things up. And so there's your, that's your developmental delay. That's the CPTSD, get putting a, throwing like a wrench in the whole thing and getting in the way of your happy life and your lifetime attachment that you'd like to have, your lifetime partnership. And so there's very good literature out there about attachment wounds and attachment styles, and those are good things to know. What you're talking about is being avoidant. There's a couple of types of that, you know, anxious or secure avoidant. And um, whatever you decide you are, that's fine. There's ways that people who have different styles can learn to work together. So it's worth knowing. And you are very self-aware. If you weren't, if you were writing like, I don't know what's wrong with me, I'd say 
you need to tell your story. Um, but if you've told your story, if you are very familiar with what happened and you're still finding that your recovery is not moving forward, and that's where a lot of us got, you know, uh, that's, I went to therapy, I told my story, and very soon I had already told the whole thing. Repeating the story wasn't getting me any closer to changing the way that I attached. There's two things that did help me and I wanna share them with you. And I'll tell you what they are up front and then I'll go a little deeper into them. And one is, you have to learn to notice and calm those triggers when they pop up. Now they are sneaky. Those triggers come up and you don't even know what's happening. Sometimes you don't even realize that your CPTSD came, that it's like a monster, you know, it just comes in like, it just comes in like grabs you by the brain and you don't even know what hit you. <laughs> and it could be a day and a half later when you're like, whoa, that whole thing just happened to me. I got dysregulated. I lost my sensitivity to what was happening. My thinking got distorted. I started to say hurtful things. I did some damage. Now I'm filled with remorse. I'm out in some hotel, you know, doing the same old drill that's happened before. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when CPTSD takes over. It can take anywhere from, you know, 30 minutes to uh, 30 days to sort of calm down out of that heightened state of dysregulation that makes it seem like you have to leave. You've just got to get out. And um, I think a lot of people in this community know that feeling, even when they're the clinging types. Sometimes, sometimes clinging balances itself out by just like running the heck away. It just runs away. And it seems very real when it's happening. It seems like it's going to solve something. But I'm sure you know so well that feeling of emptiness and remorse and guilt and shame that come when you're sitting in your car, you know, an hour away <laughs> from home and you did this to somebody again and you know how they're, now you remember, like you remember the emotional impact of what you're doing. So anyway, we understand CPTSD does that. The two things that I'm going to suggest you do, here they are. The healing part is to become aware of that, all right? is to become aware of that. When you can notice when your triggers are getting set off, now they, and they will tell you, they give you signs, all right? For me, I, my nose gets numb. I start having this yucky thought, I don't need you, I don't need anybody. So I know myself now and I know, like if I'm thinking that thought, mm, just stop talking right now. All that's gonna come out of my mouth when I'm having that thought is something not true and hurtful. And I don't wanna do that anymore. I want things to get better. So I close my mouth and I do the second thing, the second thing um, that's part of that, which is to discharge those negative thoughts and get them out of my head so that I can sort of come back to and gain perspective. Now, how do you do that? What I do is I use this writing technique. I teach it to everybody, everybody who will learn it. <laughs> Tens of thousands of people. There's always a link below my videos in the description section. It's called the daily practice. It's a writing technique. Um, you, it's very subtle. You might be surprised how helpful it is. Give it a try. It, um, it's done together with some meditation and those two together can really help calm the triggers. So finally, and this I think is the most important thing. I didn't used to really know this, but I'm sure seeing it now, the more I coach people, the more I teach people in courses, the more I'm really getting it. Connection to people. It is very, very difficult to do any substantial healing without being connected to other people. And I can't totally explain why that is. It's just my observation. In my membership program, there are people, you know, everybody takes all my courses. And a lot of the people, they never come and do the group things. We have these 
we have these group coaching calls and daily practice calls. We have a secret Facebook group. And so there's, I don't know, about 400 and some people who come and participate in, in all of that. And they amaze me with the progress that they make. And they, I, I pop in sometimes and I look at what people are talking about on Facebook. Now they're putting together um, peer-led daily practice groups. They're supporting each other. They're forming friendships. These are people who, when they first came in, they were saying that they, you know, could barely form a friendship. And, you know, especially in this last year, 2020 and 2021, there has been so much isolation. And I'm just watching people like break free and connect and heal. And I, it's really like changed my understanding of healing that it's not just something that we do for ourselves. It's not just a thing of like getting those fearful and resentful thoughts out or knowing what's wrong with us that it's so clear to me now, we are born into community and we can't escape as much as we want to. Uh, there's a lot of people with CPTSD who have kind of liked the lockdown because a lot of pressure came off of them. But the thing is, so much of the best of us can only be expressed in relation to other people. And I know a bunch of you will say, no, that's not true, I have my dog. Okay, fine. For those of you who are fine, fine, you be fine. But for all of you, who want to have better connections and who want to learn to be able to hang in there with a relationship without without flipping out every time you're triggered and without ruining the darn thing th i'm telling you this is what you do you learn and understand attachment and the wound that happened just get your information about that most of you are already there learn to discharge the fearful and anxious thoughts the, and, and resentful thoughts that would that when you're triggered activate and cause you to do and say harmful things see if you get triggered and you don't act on it no harm is done and you have time to recover right you have time to recover and then you can say something that's more constructive and healing you can you can express if something's bothering you without blowing up the whole thing i mean wouldn't that have changed everything for you so finally, community, being connected to other people. I strongly recommend that you have people in your life who are either mentors or peers or both peers who you can talk to honestly, who you can be totally open with about your feelings, about things that you feel ashamed about, about things you aspire to, and they can help give you a reality check. There's, even if they don't say anything brilliant, they don't have to be, you know, fancy therapists or anything. The act of telling another person and sharing that with them and they listen and maybe you being reciprocal with them for that, it has alchemical properties for the healing that you're already doing in yourself. And I won't try to explain it scientifically. Some people probably can, but I just know it's my experience. So I really encourage you. So learn about attachment and what happened to you and what style that gave you and how other people nurture themselves around that and find a way to fit together with people with other attachment styles. Find yourself a method to discharge the fearful and angry thoughts that normally would come flying out of you when you're triggered so that you can have a different reaction, so that you can delay that reaction and respond in a way that you choose, and this time not destroy everything. And finally, stay connected. Have mentors and peers who can hear you honestly and give you feedback that you can use to guide your growth and complete that phase of development that got stuck so long ago. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.